4, we're going to begin. Now, our text is not very difficult. In fact, it's, it's pretty straightforward, and I imagine uh, most of us will, will probably verbally agree with this text. However, I'm convinced that, that our pride will do everything it can to deny this text to becoming a, a reality in our life. Um, but I'm also convinced that by the grace of God and through His Spirit in us, that this text can radically change our lives. And if it changes our life, the impact that it has on our homes, our schools, on our neighborhoods, on our workplaces, uh, will, will be incalculable. And so I want us to stand and we're going to read. Uh, so if you don't mind standing as we read verses 24 through 30, we stand as we read the Word of God here. We do so because we believe it's inspired by God, given to us by His Spirit, uh, comes with His full authority, and so we stand as a means of acknowledging our God, and honoring him in his word. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is the disciples here. And he said to them, Jesus, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who, is, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Father, be with us this morning. God, we thank you for your word, your holy, inspired, righteous, good word. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would give us wisdom, you'd give us knowledge, fill our hearts with joy as we understand the text that is before us today, the glory that you have given to us in Jesus Christ, the glory that you promise that we'll be made like you and reign with you for all of eternity. God, help us to understand that in this life, on this earth, we serve. We serve one another as you have served us, and we do this because of the gospel. Not to earn the gospel, but because of the gospel, but because we've been saved by grace that we show your love and service to others, that others might know your love and your gospel. Be with us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, we're going to kind of make our way through this outline in about, uh, in kind of three sections. Outrageous pride, outrageous, the outrageous gospel, um, outrageous and outrageous service. Uh, so we're going to begin with pride. If you look at verse 24, we see the disciples are arguing over who is greatest in the kingdom of God. Now at this moment, Jesus is preparing for his humiliation, his death, his dying on the cross. And yet simultaneously, the disciples are concerned with their exaltation. So how can the disciples at this moment be so self-absorbed? How are the disciples more concerned with their power, their position, than they are with the fact that Jesus is about to, within hours, be arrested, be crucified, 
so they could be forgiven of all sins. One word, just sin. The disciples are struggling with sin at this moment. Sin will always appeal to our pride. Pride is being consumed with self-love. Pride is obsessed with my power, my prestige, and my position. And pride wants everyone to recognize me at all times. And pride has selective hearing. Have you ever noticed that? Pride has very selective hearing. It, like, if we just look back over the two chapters, chapters 21 and the text that was preached last week by Chris, and 22 looking at uh, the, the communion, the Passover meal, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God coming. In chapter 21, Jesus prophesies, the temple will be destroyed, and that is a sign that very soon afterwards, Jesus will come in all glory. The kingdom of God will be ushered into this world. In Luke 22, Jesus has talked about that he is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. Remember in Exodus, they sacrificed a lamb and they placed the blood over the doorpost and all who had the the blood of the lamb over their door were spared. And so now Jesus comes as the true Passover lamb. And at, at this meal, then in verse 18, Jesus says, I will not drink again of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the disciples, they're hearing, kingdom of God is coming, kingdom of God is coming, kingdom of God is coming. And they're beginning to think, what position will I have in the kingdom? They have conveniently ignored the commands, like in chapter 21, verse 34, watch out that you don't become distracted, which is what they are doing right now or verse 36 stay awake which they obviously are not awake at this moment and be praying or in chapter 22 do this in remembrance of me remember the gospel remember the gospel remember that i have come to give life and at this moment they are not remembering jesus they are not staying awake they're not watching out they're not praying they're thinking am i sitting closer to jesus or is that guy and they want the good seat the kingdom's coming who's going to have the higher seat you see because of pride as selective hearing it makes everything about me you notice they're not they're not distracted with the commands at this moment, are they? Oh man, we need to be so watchful. They're, they're not thinking about those things. They're thinking about the blessing of the kingdom. They're more concerned with their position in the kingdom than worshiping the king. And listen, our, our sin and our pride is always lurking in the shadows. In every moment of every situation, our pride is lurking take our focus off of God, off of the gospel, off of how he's called us to live, and to move us to be focused on, on ourselves, our power, our position, our prestige. Sin is like a man luring a small child to his van with a puppy. That's what he's doing. It promises some level of joy and happiness, but, but here's the thing. The joy The happiness that it promises will not last, and it will not satisfy, and it only ends in torment. It's like the happiness that it offers is like that apple that you're so excited about eating, and then as you bite into it, it's mushy and rotten, and there's a worm in it. In fact, my my wife gave me an apple yesterday. You know, she, she provided 
like, we had all these games yesterday, you know, soccer games and football games. So she has like an arsenal of food that could feed every one of you. Uh, because that's how my wife rolls. I mean, she's not just going to provide snacks for our kids, but for every kid in the world. And so uh, she has everything, and she offers me an apple. So uh, that's all that I got. She said, don't, for, don't worry, I didn't forget about you. So I was like, cool, I, I like apples. I, I like good, crisp apples. And so I held on to this apple. I was like, you oh, this this will be good. And then I bit into that apple. And it was one of those mushy apples. And you kind of like bite into it at that moment. You're just kind of like, you're not sure, do I keep chewing and swallow or do I just spit out? Like, and you're at a field, so you're like, it doesn't really matter. Nobody cares. Um, and so I gave it to my dog, and he actually did not eat it either. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's the joy that's the happiness, that pride. It looks good. And, and honestly, sin, sin can provide a level of joy for, for moments, right? But it doesn't truly satisfy us. And it ends only in torment. So what we've seen is, is the disciples now are being distracted from the king, from Jesus, from the true gospel at this moment because of pride. And if we were to look back through Luke, what we would see is people are continually distracted from following the king, from following Jesus because of the pride. So we'll just take a, a quick glance. For one, we could look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees have been uh, kind of at a focal point over the last few chapters. Jesus has been interacting with them in chapters 20 and 21. And pride is why the Pharisees reject Jesus. They want, remember, they want to go back to the great days of King David. They're expecting Israel to rise up, become the great nation. Rome will bow down before it. All other nations will bow down before it. And because Jesus isn't going to deliver that type of power and prestige and position to them, they reject him. Judas also rejects Jesus. He follows Jesus. We know he wants money. We know that he's greedy. And once he begins to figure out, you know, following Jesus isn't really going to end up in earthly riches, he goes finds his riches by betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Remember the rich young ruler in chapter 18. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him. He knows exactly what is keeping him from coming to him. And so he says, well, you need to sell all that you have and come follow me. Well, what does he do? Does he do it? No, we read in verse 23 of that chapter, he became very sad for he was extremely rich and he walked away. His pride, his desire for his own power, his own position keeps him from coming to Jesus. Pride is why the elder brother in the parable, the prodigal son in chapter 15, won't come and celebrate. Remember, the prodigal son has gone away. He's rejected the father, but now he has come back. The father has hugged him and embraced him. It's a picture of how our heavenly father loves us when we come to him. And then the elder brother represents the Pharisee. And he says in verse 29, I served you. I never disobeyed you. Where's my party? Where's my recognition? Where, where, where's the stuff that I get? And because... He does not feel like he's being recognized because his pride is not being satisfied. He will not go in and celebrate with the younger brother. It's his pride that keeps him away. 
in pride is always outraged at grace. This is why the Pharisees are always most outraged at Jesus when, they, when he demonstrates grace. This is why the elder brothers outraged at the grace. This is why Judas, remember, when the, when the woman comes and pours the oil over Jesus' feet, which is this amazing sign of just love. He says, well, that could have been sold for money. Of course, he wasn't really concerned about the poor. He just wanted his own money. But when he sees this act of love and grace, he's outraged by it. In Luke chapter 12, we read about the rich fool. He's the one who's building barns after barns after barns after barns to hold all of his stuff. He's going, man, I need more barns. I need to build my kingdom. I want to hold all of my stuff so I can say, soul, it will be well with you. And then we find that while he is rich, according to the earth, he is spiritually poor, and therefore when God returns, he will suffer for eternity. Hear this. Sin will always appeal to our pride, and our pride will always want my kingdom more than God's kingdom. It wants my rule, my recognition, my power, my exaltation. That's what it wants. And so therefore, sin will always lead us away from Jesus. And this is really, there's a logic to this pride. Uh, See, pride denies God as the rightful king. It says, I should be king. In fact, I am king, is what pride wants to say. So pride is is anti-God at its core. In fact, you could say pride is is really the heart of, of what atheism is. The atheist believes in no God. And therefore, this life is everything. Therefore, there is no certainty of the future, of life after death. Therefore, uh, under the, the mindset of the atheist, is I have one shot to get everything I want in this life. Because after, after this life, there's just death, or there's, some, there's nothing, but you don't believe in anything. There's no confidence in the future. And so, if I'm going to have possessions, if I'm going to have things, if I'm going to have my power, prestige, and position, it must be now and therefore i will do whatever it takes to get that now i have one go around at this world so i'm going to squeeze it for all the lemonade that i can get i'm going to get all the joy out of this world that i can possibly get because when i die i die and doesn't paul affirm that type of living in first corinthians 15 he says look if jesus did not raise from the dead we are most to be pitied he said the way we live is foolish we're living for for someone who didn't rise from the dead if it's true we ought to eat drink and be married because when we die we die if there is no gospel that's the mindset of pride we have one shot at this life therefore get everything you can right now but the gospel tells us something different the gospel says that no there is life after death and that is what Jesus come, that we could have that eternal life with him. And so we move on into the text, and we go from this outrageous pride to this outrageous service. And what we're going to see is that there's going to be instruction, there's explanation, and there's an ex- exaltation. And so we'll begin with the instruction. If you look at verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, uh, in these verses, he's going to say, don't live this way, but live this way. So in verse 25, he says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So by referring to Gentile rulers, he's simply saying uh, unbelieving rulers. And so now he's going to give us a little 
view of what the world's idea of leadership is. And so he uses the word exercise lordship, which means to domineer, to oppress, to dominate. And the word benefactor is usually an honorable title given to those who do good deeds for others. But that's not how Jesus is using it here. Jesus is using it here for those who mask their tyranny with good works, with public works. So if you remember, in chapter 21, verse 47, Jesus is describing the scribes. And he's talking about their lifestyle. And he says that they take women's money in exchange for making long prayers for them. They're their benefactors. He says, here, let me benefit you. Here, give me your money. I'll say really long, loud prayers for you out in public so all can hear. Don't worry, I'll take care of you as he takes their money. Which we know they actually don't care about the widow. They care about the money. They care about their power and their position and their prestige. The point Jesus is making is that worldly leaders don't actually serve others, but they serve themselves. They don't love others, they love themselves. They're governed by their pride. They use other people as vehicles to get wherever they want to go. So now in verse 26, Jesus will switch. He says, but not so with you. So this is the Gentile leaders. Unbelieving worldly leadership here is about the advancement of self. Now he's going to say, but not so with you. So he's going to give us a contrast to the way that we as believers are to live. And he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Now in the first century culture, those who were well respected were older. In fact, the youngest person either in a family or in a community were the ones without any authority. They were looked down upon. They were considered unimportant. Secondly, then Jesus says, the leader as the one who serves. Meaning that our goal is not to have other people recognize our greatness. Our goal is not to simply command other people. Our, our goal is not to domineer and dominate people. But our goal is to serve others. We are to lead by, by serving. And so if we put this instruction together, we see that we are to consider others more important than ourselves and therefore actively look to serve them. That's how Jesus is calling these disciples to live. He says you're going to consider other people more important than yourself, and therefore you're going to actively look to serve them. So why? Why do we do this? This is where we, we must continue on, because with our children or with other people, if we just simply say, you need to serve others, you're a Christian, you need to serve others, then what we're doing is just heaping works upon them without any explanation. I want them to know why. Why is it that we serve others? What is, what is the heart mentality here? So in verse 27, Jesus is going to give an explanation. And he's going to ask a question. Who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves at the table? Now obviously in the world's eyes, it's the one who reclines at the table. In fact, Jesus says that. Who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? I mean, isn't that what we want? We want to be the person who reclines. We want to be the person who sits. We want to be the person who people walk in and they come up to you and greet you. And they say, man, we're so glad that you're here today. We want to be the person that when we enter into a room, all the eyes turn to us and recognize us. No one wants to be the person that, was that person here at the party? I'm not sure. I don't remember. No one wants to be that person. We all want to be the person that is memorable. 
But Jesus now says, in verse 27, But I am among you as the one who serves. The world says we want to be the one who is served. And Jesus says, I am the one serving. And when he says that, obviously the disciples are understanding he is the greater one. He is the greatest one. What we don't see here in Luke's gospel that most likely happens right before this conversation is that Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. We read that in John 13. Now normally, the foot washing job was, was for the lowest servant foot washing was nasty i mean if you think it's nasty now and you're thinking man i wouldn't want someone to wash my feet most likely you showered today or yesterday you have socks on some of you i don't have socks on um but you have shoes on which we all greatly appreciate but not in first century they they wore sandals they were barefoot and they walked on on dirt roads where other animals and other things were all on. And so there was filth everywhere. And so their feet were constantly walking in filth. And so the lowest servant would then take it upon them and they would wash everyone's feet. And so here, what we're to understand is that Jesus comes, and we see it clearly in John 13, where he does wash the disciples' feet, where Jesus kneels down and washes the disciples' feet. We have the holy creator of the universe, the one who, who spoke creation into place, the one who rules and holds all things into place right now by one word, sustaining it, and he kneels down, taking a towel, washing the disciples' feet while the disciples are arguing about their title. Who will be the greatest? And Jesus takes the towel. What we have here is Jesus is calling the disciples, to live like him. He says, the world will say you need to be served, but in the kingdom of God, we are people who serve. Now, why do we consider others greater than ourselves and serve others? We don't just say serve others, but it's serve others like Jesus has served us. And isn't that the gospel? Doesn't the gospel come to us because Jesus has served us? We have, the gospel is about Jesus, the king, the creator of all the universe, entering into creation as a man, dying for us so that we could be saved. Jesus becomes like us, dying so that we could be saved and thus become like him. The gospel is about the Son of God becoming man and being killed so that you and I could be saved. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is a a neat portion of Scripture that clearly reveals the heart that a disciple is to have, and it's based upon the heart that Christ has. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. He says, Paul's writing, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I just want to point out a few things. Notice the humility of Christ. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. He takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of man. Look at verse 8. He humbles himself to the point of death. Not just any death, but death by cross. Our salvation comes because of Jesus' humiliation. There is no salvation without humility. There is no forgiveness of sins without Jesus coming off the throne. In fact, Jesus does not serve us by staying on the throne. He serves us by coming off the throne, entering into creation, that he would die on a cross. And that through his death, whoever believes in him would be forgiven of sins and thus have eternal life, that they would then live with him forever in his kingdom. Now I want you to see the connection between Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why does God exalt Jesus? This, this will be our interaction time. Why does God exalt Jesus? What has he done? What has Jesus done? He subjects himself to death. He humbles himself, right? Jesus pursues humility. The Father exalts him. Why is Jesus exalted? Because he humbled himself. That's what the therefore is there for. Remember, whenever we see a therefore, we ask, why is the therefore therefore? Because we want to know. We're people of the text. So we go, it's therefore for a reason. So what's it there for? It's connecting humiliation and exaltation. Jesus pursues humility. He dies on the cross. And now Paul is saying, you have this mind among yourselves. Live like Jesus. Pursue humility. Jesus is preferring the Father's glory over his own glory, and therefore he is glorified forever with the Father through humiliation. He leaves the cross, or leaves the throne in obedience to the Father, pursuing the Father's glory. And by pursuing the Father's glory, thus he is glorified with the Father. So in this text, we're given a pattern of the kingdom. Humility leads to exaltation. Pursuing the Father's glory on earth, humility, that's what Jesus did by going to the cross, leads to sharing in the Father's glory, exaltation in all of eternity. Jesus, in this Philippians passage and, and here in Luke, he's showing us the truth of, of Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now just to be clear, we do not earn our exaltation through our humility. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say, oh man, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta earn this somehow, so how do I earn it? Well, I'll just be really good and humble on earth, and therefore I'm exalted. Neither do we pursue our, 
pursue exaltation by just trying to be humble. Rather, God promises us exaltation, and thus we are free to live in humility. Living in humility is possible only because of the glory that God has promised us. And we could go through Luke and through uh, much of the New Testament. We could go through Old Testament, um, looking at passages on how Jesus knew prior to the cross that he would be receiving a throne. He would be receiving the glory of God. Jesus did not blindly come to earth going, I don't know what's going to happen after this whole cross thing. He wasn't just kind of, I'm not sure what the next step is. He knew that by coming to earth, dying on the cross, pursuing humility, there would be exaltation. That's the plan that God has given before even creation. So Jesus comes in full awareness of this, and now that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. He lets them know, this is the certainty of your future. Therefore, you are now free to live in a certain way. Let's go back to verses 28 and 30 of our text in Luke. So switch all the way back to Luke. And this is where we come to the exaltation. Notice, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, just side note right here. What are the disciples doing at this very moment? Debating who's the greatest. Does this sound like a faithful moment in the disciples' life? I mean, is this like highlighting, man, you guys have stayed with me in the trials, except for like that last 30 seconds when you guys were totally rejecting my rule and going back for your own rule? Um, so just be comforted by our following of Jesus. We are not perfect. We, we are not Never going to sin again, not never. We are n- I think I did double negative there. We're not sinless. We still struggle with sin. God knows that. And, and by his righteousness, our imperfect works are considered perfect. But, but let us remember that our fight with sin is not over, and we'll get into that in a few moments. So Jesus does look at these disciples who have stayed with him, although currently demonstrating some level of unfaithfulness. He does look at them and say, you have remained with me. You are faithful. Remember, Judas is left at this moment. And so we we read, verse 29, I assigned to you, as my father assigned me, a kingdom. So Jesus is going to give them a kingdom, just like the father gave him a kingdom. Now we know that Jesus is not going to give them a different kingdom. He's not saying, well, the father gave me a kingdom. You can have a kingdom too. Our kingdoms will be next to each other. That's not what he's promising here. We know that because as we continue to look at the text, like in verse 30, Jesus says they will eat and drink together at his table in his kingdom. So the context, the the words show us, Jesus is talking about, I assign to you a kingdom, a position in my kingdom, that you might eat at my table in my kingdom. So there's not multiple kingdoms here. Rather, the disciples' kingdom that is given to them is the kingdom of the very Son of God, which is the kingdom of God himself. Now, just for a moment, we'll look, this text raises a few questions. Who are the 12 tribes of Israel that the disciples will rule over? It's just kind of thrown in here. Well, most likely, this refers to the church. All of God's people, Jew and Gentile, that's how Paul will refer to the 
to Israel in Galatians chapter 6. That's how he also refers to it in Romans chapter 11. That's how we see it in Revelation chapter 7. We see the 12 tribes of Israel. Then right after that, we see an innumerable amount of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering before um, the throne of God. So we see this, that Israel is often referred to in the New Testament as the combined people of God, Jew and Gentile. So most likely that's what's being referred to here. Now is Jesus saying that only the disciples, those with him right then, will be given a position to rule? Or is this applied to all believers? Do we all rule over the people of God? That sounds kind of strange. If we all rule over the people of God when we are the people of God. So it appears that the 12 apostles, not Judas, but now probably bringing Paul in on this, will be distinguished in some way in the eternal kingdom. Very strong likelihood of that. But let us remember in Revelation 3.21, the letter to Laodicea, this is what Jesus says to those who conquer, to those who persevere, to those who remain with him. Just like he just said to the disciples, you have remained with me. So in Revelation 3.21, Jesus says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now this is spoken to all believers. This is to you and to me. And we're told that we'll sit with Jesus on his throne. And what throne does Jesus sit on? The throne of the? The throne of the Father. So what we're given here is that we know that our destiny is to sit with Jesus on his throne, with the Father's throne. There's not multiple thrones. There's this throne where Jesus sits and the Father sits, and we sit there with him. And so will the 12 apostles be distinguished in some way? Very likely. But yet we also know that God shares all of his glory, all of his riches, all of his rule with us as well. But here's the point. Jesus Jesus promises us future exaltation so that now in the present we can pursue humility. This This is the point here. Jesus promises us the title so that right now we can pick up the towel. In fact, our picking up the towel now reveals our faith in God that he has promised that we will share, our faith in God that he's promised that we will share in his perfect glory for all of eternity. That's that's what it is. To live by faith is to humbly live as Christ lived, knowing that all of God's riches, all of his glory, all of his honor, he shares with us because of Jesus Christ. The guarantee of our future exaltation, sharing in the glory of God, frees us to now, in the present, love and serve others. This radically changes the way we talk to our children, right? Well, just serve others. Just serve your brother. Just serve your sister. Why? Because think about what you have in Jesus. Think about what you have. Jesus has given everything for us. So that in him, we could have everything. And now, we give everything in this life because we now know in him we possess everything. Let's look at just some application. We don't show the power of God and the might of God and the rule of God by domineering over other people and making them serve us. It's not how we show the rule of God. Rather, we are our service to God is based upon his character 
and just as God has humbly served us through the sending of his son, now we demonstrate his character by humbly and serving others. So fathers, the way we show our children the power of God, the gospel, is not by simply giving out commands, but by serving our children, by helping them, by coming alongside them, by being patient with them, by loving them. Husbands, the way we love our wives is not by ruling over them. I know we love the Ephesians, head, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands are the head. It's true. And how are they to live as Christ lived and as he served the church? So husbands, we love our wife and we shepherd her in the gospel by, sacri- by serving sacrificially for them. Just as Jesus does the church. Now, wives, the way you serve your husbands is not by manipulation, but by considering them more important than yourself and serving them, just as the church does for Christ. In the workplace, we show people the power of God, again, the gospel, by serving those above us and those who are below us. Now, now just think for a moment. Let's take Monday. Monday, put Monday in your view. What would happen if tomorrow you truly were putting the needs of others before you, looking for ways to serve them? What would happen if at school you went and befriended the one who does not have any friends? How would that change your day? What would happen if at work you were not considered with, you were not, You were not concerned about your title and your rank, but you were concerned about serving those who are underneath you and helping them. What would happen if in our homes we were more concerned with putting the other person first and getting our way? I think, how would that affect our conversations? How would that affect the priorities of the day? Do you think people would ask questions? Do you think people might ask questions like, why do you live this way? Remember, 1 Peter chapter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So people don't ask other people questions about their lifestyle when they live the same way as they do. You know that, right? Like if you live like me, I... I don't wonder really anything about you. Rather, we ask questions about those who live differently. People ask questions when we cease to live like the world and we live as a citizen of God's kingdom. When we pick up the towel rather than pursue the title, we are showing people the love of Jesus, which will lead to telling them about Jesus, which leads to them hopefully believing and also sharing in the very glory of God themselves you see there's a logic to this humility there's a logic to pride right pride pride makes a lot of sense if if we understand it correctly we don't believe in a future this is everything therefore i'm going to get everything i need now because when i die i die that's the logic of pride but there's a logic to humility as believers we've been given everything in god he holds nothing back from us 
if you think about it, and I love this, I was reading a book um, a, a while ago, and there was one part that just stood with me, and it's the fact that what existed with the Father prior to creation? The Son and the Spirit, right? Nothing else. What does the Father give you and I? The Son and the Spirit. He holds nothing back. He sends the Son to die for us, and then by believing in Him, we have the Spirit of God who dwells in us and lives with us every single moment of the day. The Father holds nothing back. And then because He adopts us so that He would consider us as a son, just as He does His own son, and we're considered co-heirs with Christ, He gives us everything. We have all glory, all honor, all power, all power, position, prestige in Jesus Christ. It's true, amen. He gives us everything and holds nothing back. And how does it come to us? By grace. It all comes by grace. Through Jesus humbly serving us. And now, because we've been given everything in eternity, meaning it will last because we know the things on this earth will not last because they're temporal. We read about one day this world will be rolled up, burned up, and made new. We are now free to serve others. We're now free to not be concerned with the things of this world. It's not that they're not important. It's not that we don't need money. It's not that it's wrong to have a house and a couch and a car. But we're no longer concerned with them. So that now we are free to serve others. We're free to truly love them as Christ loves us. Now, I think there's at least two ways we pursue this humility. And I refer to two ways because these two ways come in very close context to where we're at right now in Luke 22. Two ways that we pursue that this life of humility in Christ. Number one, by remembrance. I want you to go back, just look at verse 19 in chapter 22. Just, just going back a few verses. This goes back to the text that was preached last week. It says, and he took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus is commanding the disciples, and thus also, us also, as we take communion, to remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus comes in humility, dying on a cross so that we are saved. At communion, we're reminded of the humiliation of Jesus, are we not? At communion, we're reminded that we're saved by the death of Jesus. At communion, we're reminded that Jesus did not just die, but he rose again, and now he promises to return again. At communion... We remember the first coming, but then we also remember the second coming when he will return and God's rule will be made evident on this earth and we will share in his glory for all of eternity with him. At communion, we are reminded that we are to serve others as Jesus has served us. And so one thing we've talked about here, it's kind of a side note, um, We've talked about starting doing communion every week. You know, we, we, we did it a little bit last year. And it was actually this morning. I, I was just going back over this text. I was going back to the text in chapter 22 that was preached last week. How, how can we not start doing the communion meal every week? If at communion 
we remember the gospel in a very vivid, very pictorial type way. And if communion is a way in helping remind us of the life of humility that we're to live because of the life of humility that Christ has lived for us, knowing that now his spirit is in us that we would live like him, how could we not deny such an amazing grace every day or every time that we gather? So I think uh, we've talked about it, and I think we're done talking about it. We, we know that we need to do communion. And so um, after today, I'll, I'll talk with the guys who help out with communion, and we'll look at how to get this happening every week as another way of just remembering our king. Not just remembering him, but because of him, what he has done, and his spirit that now lives in us, how we live. The second thing that I believe that we're called to do is, is if we go back a little bit farther into Luke chapter 21, how are we to pursue this life of humility? We remember the gospel, and we do that at communion, and we do that regularly whenever we gather. But at the end of chapter 21, this is where Jesus is now telling us, how do we live as we wait for the kingdom of God? How do we live in light of Jesus' return? In verse 34 and 36, we're given some pretty amazing commands. Verse 34 in chapter 21, Jesus says, Watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Basically, the idea of overindulgence. And cares of this life, and that day and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So he says, we need to watch ourselves. We're aware, what are we doing? How are we living? And if you look at verse 36, very similarly, stay awake. Are you awake? Are we awake? And, and how do we stay awake? Stay awake at all times, praying. So the way that we stay awake is, is praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place to stand before the Son of Man. So we're to watch and pray. The way we watch is by praying. You see, as we talked about, just like the disciples, just like us, on this earth, we are going to battle with sin. And sin will continually appeal to our pride. Therefore, we know sin will continually want us to forget about the riches we have in eternity and want us to think about the riches we now need on this earth. Sin and pride will continually try to distract us, hijack us, lure us with the puppy so that we begin to think more about what we have now and what is our rank what is our power? What is our position? What is our rule? Versus the immense glory that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Sin would rather we satisfy ourselves now with our lust than be satisfied what Christ has given to us for all of eternity. So this is why we must watch ourselves because honestly there's good things in this world, right? Like, there wouldn't have to be this command if there wasn't good things. God made a good world. There's good things. It's okay to, to like things. But the danger is, is we so easily become distracted with things. That we begin thinking, we need this, we need this. And it so subtly comes in that can affect even the way we enter into a church building. Did anyone recognize me? Who knows when I am here? So how do we counteract this? through prayer. And so what I think he's getting at here is that we're not just to pray. 
pray is not just, prayer is not something we do just before we eat. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes the, the lunch prayer, the dinner prayer, the breakfast prayer, it's kind of like, how do we get through this ritual so I get to the food? Like, do you ever feel like that? You do, right? Because I do. I mean, not that I ever do that, but no, of course, like, I struggle, right? Like, do you ever, like, struggle? Like, it's kind of like we sit down, and I start eating, kids like, did you pray? Fine, let's pray. You know, you're, you kind of feel like that. Sometimes I think we just don't think in our prayers. But, but what's happening here, watch yourself, stay awake, pray. We're to be thoughtful in our prayers, which means I'm going to have to put some time in, which means I need to think about my day, which means I need to think about myself. Now, this is what sin will do. Sin will say, you don't have time for that. Sin will say, you're busy. You have all these things to do. Look at this list. And we are busy people, right? I mean, I can look at my life right now. I don't have a single day free between Monday through Friday evening with the kids' sports. Every night, I, I'm busy. And so I can say, man, I, I don't have time to think about where am I at sin, sinning? What are my motivations behind things? But that's exactly the trap that sin wants us to fall into. So rather, we, we must take this time and consider, how am I living? We take the word of God and we say, what is God's word calling me to live? Am I living that way? God has promised me, like in our text, eternal riches. Am I living like that? Am I living in light of knowing that God has given me everything? Or am I thinking that I need everything right now? Are my days focused on stuff or on Jesus? Am I more concerned about showing the gospel or getting my way? So I think we need to spend time in prayer. Reflection upon the word of God. Asking God to examine, asking God to help examine our life that we would know how to pray how to ask for his grace. Because when we pray, what are we reminding ourselves? Not only that we're saved by grace, but that we need his grace each and every day. So what, what I want to do is, as we close here, I want us to give us just a few moments, and I want us to, to spend time in prayer. And, and what I, I want to ask you to do is just consider, are you living like Jesus? Are, are you confident, are you aware of all that God has given you in Christ Jesus? Or are you living in such a way that you're forgetting about those truths? Have you become distracted? And if so, let's just take a few moments and let's just pray. Let's pray that God would help us individually, but also as a church, that we would not be distracted. We're going forward. We're voting in a budget in a few months. We don't want our budget to be focused just on earthly things, but how is our budget moving to advance the gospel? In our own lives, let's be praying. How are we living in such a way that advances the gospel? And so let's spend a few moments in, in praying that God would help us, would strengthen us, would refine us. And, and if we need to repent, I encourage you, repent. Repentance is an amazing sign that you are saved because it is a work of faith. So don't be discouraged when you repent. Be encouraged that God is leading you to repent. And so if you have something to repent today, share that with God. If you want, come share it with me also or, or, or someone who is sitting by you that we might pray with you. And then what I'll do in a few moments is I'll pray. But as we go out, let's be reminded of the gospel that our, that our God gave everything, his son Jesus, to die on a cross so that we who believe in him could be given everything. 
And now the way that we live is like Jesus, giving everything, because we know that in Jesus we have been given everything. Let's pray. Our Father, God, you have made good things in this world. And I know that, that I get distracted at times. I know that there's times I'm more concerned about my kingdom than your kingdom. I know I'm concerned more times about getting the things that I want and how I show others love. God, I pray that we as a church, we as individuals, God, that we would understand the glory and the riches that you have given us in Jesus. And that, God, we are promised by faith to live with you for all of eternity that we might bask in your presence, experiencing the fullness of joy at every single moment. God, may we know the riches that you have given us. God, may we, may we come each day into your word, and may we behold your glory, the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, understanding that, God, he has come and died, that we could be forgiven and made new, that we would live like you every single day. God, may we understand that you have given us your spirit, that we can live like you, that we are empowered and strengthened each and every moment, that every command you give us is met by your grace in your son Jesus through your spirit. God, I pray that we as a church, God, help us to be focused, to be fixated upon your kingdom, upon your glory. And God, may we see the things in this world as mere instruments that you have given us, as tools in which we get to use to serve others for the glory of your kingdom. God, may we consider the possessions that we have, the positions that we have, as things that can be leveraged for helping other people come to know you, for helping other people to see the love of your son Jesus, for helping other people understand the gospel, to know the gospel, that they would believe in the gospel and also spend eternity with you. God, I pray that you would expose in us any pride, expose in me any pride. And God, help us to know the glory that you've set before us. God, may we know that you have held nothing back, that you've given us true eternal riches. 
in your son Jesus. In your name, amen.